Welcome to Agatha Christie, she watched, our spoiler-heavy look at the movie and TV adaptations of the mystery genre's greatest writer. I'm Bill Peschel of Peschel Press, publishers of the annotated novels of Agatha Christie, and today we'll be talking about international conspiracies, ambitious actors, sinister Chinamen, and fake funerals. It's The Big Four, the 2013 Poirot episode starring David Suchet as Hercule Poirot. But first, let me introduce my partner in marriage as well as crime of the fictional kind, Teresa Paschal. Hello, Teresa. How are you doing? Hi, Bill. My voice sounds a little bit rough today, but that's because, folks, we were at the Pennsylvania Ren Fair on Saturday, and I spent a lot of time screaming, blood, blood, <laughs> blood, at all of the jousts. So, so if I sound a little different, that's why. I'm still recovering. Yeah, but we had a great time anyway. Oh, it was fun. And we had a great time last night because we got to see the big four. And it was so much better than what I had been dreading. The novel really is. The novel's really bad. It's, it's, she put it together in a hurry. She had, Agatha had to fulfill her contract. Her marriage was collapsing. She'd had the 11 day disappearance and all the Falderall connected to that. And she was not in a writing mood. And she had a family friend, I think, as the story goes, suggesting Archie's uh, brother. Uh, okay, so she was listening to the brother-in-law, who turned out not to be completely worthless. Uh, so she's <laughs> listening to the brother-in-law not living on her couch. And he said to take a group of short stories and string them together and turn them into a novel. And when you read The Big Four, which I dutifully plowed through, I had never read it before, and now I know why. Uh, I dutifully plowed through The Big Four, and it is incredibly episodic. It is. It doesn't feel cohesive at all, other than that you keep meeting the same characters. The story is completely ridiculous. It should either be a much bigger novel, or it should be a much tighter, shorter novel, where you remove everything that's unrelated. And what I thought was especially strange is uh, I'm pretty familiar with the short stories of Hercule Poirot, and yet I did not recognize any of the Poirot stories in the Big Four. So I do not know if the short stories in the Big Four were ever reprinted as something else. Once she converted them into the Big Four, they kind of disappeared from... The canon because they don't show up in the later collections. That's for sure. Yeah, I've read enough of them to know that. Yeah, they're not in the casebook. I did not read any of these. I would have remembered somebody being hit over the head with a leg of lamb because my first thought, of course, was, uh, was it Roald Dahl? Yeah, it was the Roald Dahl story that made it into a Twilight Zone episode. Yes, where the uh, uh, the abused wife kills her husband with the frozen leg of lamb and then cooks the lamb and serves it to the nice police investigators, and they never discover what the weapon was because, well, it had been cooked and eaten by themselves. So the Big Four, as it's, con as it's converted here, opens with... I can't remember, did it open with the funeral? Yes, it opened with the funeral. And for a very brief moment, we get to see uh, everybody in the gang except Hercule reassemble. Because, of course, there's Captain Hastings come back from Argentina because he had received the death notice. And then uh, Miss Lemon and uh, Commissioner Jap, he's now an assistant commissioner, and uh, George the valet, of course. And it was George the valet who was writing the notes to everybody. So they he wrote the note to Captain Hastings. Who, no, no, Jap, Jap was, was writing Jap? the notes. Oh, it, Jap felt right, it was George. his duty to write them. And so we get to see Miss Lemon 
Simon very briefly again reassembling for Poirot's funeral, but you don't know why he died at this point. Right. And then it jumps back three weeks or four weeks. Four weeks back in time. And you see an intrepid newspaper uh, reporter, and he's telling this ridiculous conspiracy theory to... uh, From the Foreign Office. Yes, that's Mr. Ingalls. And uh, Mr. Ingalls looks at him and says, this is bulldog Drummond territory. And folks, if you are paying attention, that is an important clue because Bulldog Drummond, uh, you know this better than I do, but he was, of course, a writer. Well, this was a character. Oh, he was a character at the time. And he was like Jason Bourne of today. (laughs) (laughs) That's a kind way of putting it. I think among the stories that really emphasize the jingoism and the racism, think of it as uh, Mickey Spillane's private eye. If you and if you ever want to really see what a, what a a uh, masculine man squaring off against the world and not giving a fig for what anybody thinks, you read the Mike Hammer, the initial Mike Hammer novels, and they are just a punch in the gut. And Bulldog Drummond is is a precursor to that. But the point is that the Foreign Service office guy who has heard this kind of conspiracy claptrap before, he knows a load of cod swallop when he sees it, and he says. <laughs> I don't know what you're buying from people sending you things over the transom, but it's garbage. And then we move on to the chess match. But before we get into it, I do want to say that I really was not expecting anything good from this adaptation. The novel is a mess. It is such a mess that the novel that she published after this was The Mystery of the Blue Train and... My God, she was really getting back into her form. Even though she didn't want to write The Blue Train, she did a really nice job It's a fun novel. It made a wonderful movie. And I don't know why Agatha disliked people who said they really liked The Blue Train. I can understand why she disliked people who said I love The Big Four. But The Blue Train is a perfectly fine novel. But The Big Four was awful. And I was just dreading this. I knew that Mark Gaddis had done the writing. And he did Cat Among the Pigeons. And I thought he did a really good job. And he did Halloween Party, which is one of the latest novels. And she was starting to slide, very much so, in Halloween Party, all of these unfinished plot threads, and he really took and ran with that. That's what he did with this. He really ran with the plot elements in the big four and turned it into a... I I liked it. I thought it was a very good film. I thought it was probably the best reworking of the novel you could possibly get and still incorporate most of the novel in the film and considering how absurd how ridiculous how wildly implausible how uh these are people with their tinfoil beanies screwed on way too tight and wearing tinfoil suits to go with it to make sure that they are not being be having the cia beam radio waves at them i am amazed that it turned out this well (laughs) So we move on to a number of different plot threads that over time slowly come together. Yes. We have Abe Ryland, the American money man. Uh, with Madame, a suspicious past. With a suspicious past. Madame Olivier, who is, a, who is French and a scientist involved in various kinds of experiments with drugs. And the both of them, the reason why they are connected is they are members of the Peace Party, which is an international peace organization founded apparently by the mysterious Chinaman, Li Chen Yang. I'm trying to remember the name. Doesn't appear in the story. Yeah, he out. never so appears no in the novel. He never appears in the novel. He is always the shadowy background figure setting things in motion. And Mark Gaddis ran with that concept because Lee 
Chen Yang, and I know I am saying his name wrong. He is the subject of a magisterial biography by Jonathan Walley, who is a, a serious Chinese scholar in England. And he is the, the driving force behind the Peace Party, of which Abe Ryland and Madame Olivier are really super important, highly placed people like his XO and his next to the XO, one down, you know, two or three steps down in the organization. And yet you never meet him. He's never anything more than of the picture on the painting on the wall or the cover of the book. He is a mysterious background figure who never, ever appears, just like the novel. I'm looking at, a, at the cover of the book because the book plays a role in this. It's Li Chang Yen. So you got. Oh, I got cool. it right. You got Ooh. Close there. I think you got it right. And the struggle for peace. That's the book by Jonathan Wally, who is the, the Chinese scholar, the Chinese scholar. Who and this philosophy is kind of motivating the peace party that Abe Ryland and Madame Olivier are a part of. So it all ties together beautifully, all of these threads from the novel, this really terribly written novel, unfilmable novel, and Mark Gaddis took them and made them into something better. And in many ways, they're the same people that they were in the novel, which is really surprising, too, because Madame Olivier is this supercilious, I'm better than you, brilliant French woman. And Abe Ryland, of course, has a mysterious past, and he expects that he can get whatever he wants because he's a rich man. I also like the fact that he used the Peace Party because it makes for a very effective red herring. Because at the time in the run-up to World War II, anybody promoting peace or world government or anything like that can be considered suspect. Because part of the motivation behind the Peace Party is essentially appeasement. Because you have Hitler invading the Sudetenland, you have Hitler invading Czechoslovakia and making demands uh, as far as reparations for World War One, And you had a lot of people who did not want a repeat of World War One, and they were willing to do anything to prevent it. And for very good reason, too, let me add, folks, World War One was a meat grinder for everyone who went through it. Cleaning up afterwards, you know, the, the, the friends and relatives back home, it was a meat grinder and they would have done anything to avoid that. Yeah. But at the same time, the history has shown the appeasers to be on the, the wrong side of, the, of yes. the conflict, I'm afraid. Yes, you reach that point of what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And in fact, it was shown after the war that, that Hitler and his cronies were very worried about invading the Sudetenland because if France attacked them, they had nothing to respond with. They were not built up nearly as much as they pretended to be. And it was a risk that they took. They, France could have invaded um, thrown Hitler out of office. And everything and would have been different. Life would have been much different. The, the time, it's a trousers of time moment, if ever there was one. Yes, everything would have been different. So but we have that, and going on to Abe Ryland in the chess match, with uh, as part of the peace process that they were promoting. Yes, they were having this, mass, this magisterial chess tournament where they brought this uh, famous Russian chess master out of retirement. Uh, the, the, the Russian embassy, the Russian government agreed and this is one of the short stories in 
that that was compiled into the big four and it was almost exact in terms of you had the the russian grandmaster he was his health was poor but he had come out to play one final exhibition match and he was getting really well paid for this and he reaches his hand he's playing the Rui Lopez which is a very standard very famous opening and lots of chess players use it because it works really well and gets everything off moving quickly and I I can't remember my chess at all, although I do know how to move the pieces around. But there's, he but moves for the like, bishop out. yeah, he moves the bishop out, which because everyone knows that he already pl- he always opens with the Rui Lopez, so he moves his white bishop out and sets it down, and bzzzt, and he dies electrocuted by an electrified chess man. And this is right out moment. of the story. They didn't know at the moment. They thought he died of a heart attack. But yes, and Poirot... in, in the story, that is what happened. Poirot yeah. went back and figured it out. They didn't realize at first because there's a thin metal rod that is uh, the, the chess piece was drilled out and a thin metal rod was dr- drilled up through the chess piece and the board was electrified and when he set the piece down on that particular silver square because the the that was how the board was made that metal square that's when the, he completed the circuit by placing the rod down and and was electrocuted and it's very clever and she wrote this back in like 1920 something and then it was repurposed for the big four and here it is again and it works it really works and i have to say as i'm watching all of these incredibly well-dressed people standing around a couple two guys at a chessboard everybody's in evening dress everybody looks great and i do know something about playing chess but i don't like it and i think chess is one of those games that if you are a chess fan you are simply riveted and if you are not a chess fan a player or a fan you are trying to chew your arm off to get out of that room and i remembered an experience that bill and i had when we went to the farm show the pennsylvania farm show in harrisburg and there's a competition called sheep to shawl and a lot of this a lot of chess matches are just like sheep to shawl you have moments of high drama when the sheep is being sheared or when you pass over the first hank of spun yarn to the weaver and for the rest of it well if you're serious about wool and and fiber arts you are riveted as you watch teams of spinners of you know spinning that freshly carded wool into yarn and other people who are not interested in fiber arts like bill are looking for the escape routes and you just go off to you just go off to the bathroom or, or you go off and get some uh, fresh made milkshakes maybe with a little bit of uh, something from the bottle to put in there to kind of pass the time anything to pass the time yes and 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 chess matches for those of you who have not seen chess matches i don't care how beautifully dressed the crowd is you either are interested because it's chess oh my god he's opening with the Rui lopez what is he going to do when there 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 comes a point where the match changes where the where the players stop where they do something different they aren't following the exact set pattern because if you follow the exact set pattern um after a certain point then you're just playing a it's 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 like paint by numbers you're not really playing the game well you're 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 making the optimal moves which is which is nowadays thanks to computers you can have a chess match that's an optimal move for each turn up to about 15 move 15 to 20 but after that and then after that once they once they're not in the pattern then it becomes a matter of actually sitting there and thinking yes how good are you and so 
if you know that, and, and so this makes sense for you non-chess players, this actually really makes sense. If you know that the master always opens with the Rui Lopez, then you know exactly what he is going to move for at least the first six moves. And so on move number four, he picks up his white bishop and moves it to uh, whatever the number of the, the, the particular square is, you know it's going to happen. Bzz, and he slumps forward, electrocuted, and everybody thinks that he's either, either had a massive stroke or a massive heart attack because, of course, the last thing you think is that, oh, the chessboard was electrified? <laughs> really? Well, just, that, just that piece, not the entire board. This is a complicated system. An electrician could actually, because they figured out there's a panel uh, uh, in one of the floor tiles because he had to have his foot on that electrified panel and he had to touch the bishop and put it on that square, and which was electrified. And complete the electrical that, circuit. And close the circuit. <laughs> so after 15 minutes of talking about the chess match, let's move on, shall we? Because we have only so much time. But yeah, and and so uh, this is where again the intrepid reporter Tyso he shows up at the chess match. He uh, he crashes a chess match, and again, <laughs> these folks should have been grateful to have anybody from the outside to show up to cover the chess match because ninety nine point nine nine percent of the world is thinking, really, this is so boring. Let's go watch some footy. And, uh, but anyway, Tyso shows up, makes his accusation of uh, Abe Ryland, and then, um, uh, and and then of course uh, the the Grandmaster, bzzzed, yeah. and then we're off to the races. And so from then on, then we get the another mysterious murder, which is uh, the Chinese scholar Jonathan Wally, and and this one again, the storyline is taken right out of the text. Right, he's found in his house. Uh, bashed, bashed uh, his head, bashed in. His head bashed in. His throat cut, and, and the the maid is there. The housekeeper's there, and his servant, and and his personal servant, his valet. And this is a relatively new valet. And the housekeeper implies, and this is important. And this is one of those things that could have been brought out a little bit more. He was, uh, Wally was unmarried. He was a confirmed bachelor, and what the housekeeper implies is that he was impossible to live with. Mm -hmm. He was so much of a Chinese scholar, so much of a cinephile, that... Uh, he didn't have friends. He didn't have friends. He that. He, he had uh, the only... All of his friends were correspondents, like correspondence chess players. All of his friends were via correspondence only. You know, you, you write back and forth with information about your the subject of interest, but had no family. He had a nephew that he raised because kind of he was forced to. And he was not a very pleasant man. And suddenly he's coshed on the head, and then it looks like it is the uh, valet who turns out to have a criminal record, and the valet has this ridiculous story about, oh, I came out of prison... And one of those um, uh, come back to Jesus pastors was there and he got me this job and I was so grateful and I have no idea who it was. And, and of course, nobody at the prison knows what he's talking about. Nobody knows what he's talking about. But Poirot is able to prove that even though it looks like the valet did it 
And the valet admits to stealing the ivory figurines because he knew he was going to get hung for this, this crime anyway because of his pr criminal record. He saw the boot print. He saw the criminal record. You know, he knows his criminal record. He saw the, the bloody boot print from which the boot. Matches which his matches boot. his exactly. And he thought, oh, I'm going to swing for this. And I didn't do it. If I can just get out of here with those valuable ivories, I'll be okay. But events overtake him and he's arrested and the local Bobby is convinced that he did it because of course everything is set up to make him look guilty and then Poirot recognizes that he didn't he couldn't have because there's a big leg of mutton on the table in the kitchen the kind of thing that the FD uh, food and drug administration, and, drug administration the and the USDA all the health departments say oh my god you're letting something thaw on the counter without even a bowl over it to keep the fly off and it was frozen mm -hmm. and Poirot knows and this is a very much a piece of its time not just that you have a piece of raw meat on the counter without a bowl over it to keep the flies off because my mother thaws things that way and so do I but that you have that you had this big piece of meat that had to have been delivered by the butcher and that because day. it that day and it was still frozen which meant that it had just been delivered and it was delivered on a monday when apparently butchers deliver on a saturday or yeah something they deliver like on a saturday a day for delivery and sundays remember sunday is a day of rest in which you were supposed to be at church and then monday you were getting back into the swing of things but you cleaned out your shop on saturday because remember you don't really have necessarily a lot of storage a lot of frozen storage so monday is uh, a business day but you wouldn't necessarily be making deliveries and poirot looked at that and realized there had been somebody else in the house, somebody who, uh, if, if he was seen making a delivery, nobody would think anything of it because, of course, the butcher makes deliveries to the grand houses on a regular basis, and it's okay if the butcher has a little blood on his clothes because that's his line of work. And so, yes, of course, once he realizes this and they start making, uh, they start asking the neighbors, the neighbors all say, why, yes, I did see the butcher's van drive up. And the butcher says, uh, no, I didn't do that. Which means somebody else did. So there, there's, there's, there's that particular story. And then we can move on to Flossie Monroe, the actress. Yes, and again, she came right out of the text. She is an aging actress. She stopped being an ingenue a long time ago, and she's probably in her 40s. She is now, she no longer plays Juliet. She plays the nurse. Although, frankly, uh, I was amused. I actually <coughs> looked up uh, Sarah Parrish, who plays her, and she was 45 when she did the role. And the nurse is actually a part for older women. You're supposed to be almost a crone to play that particular part. So they, it's, but it, uh, but for an actress who is out of her freshness and no longer, you know, in her prime, then yes, she starts moving into the older parts. If you're 45 and female in the Hollywood business, you're a crone. Remember, there are three stages for women actresses: ingenue, district attorney, grandma. And you stay an ingenue as long as you possibly can. For those of you who have not seen, um, oh, oh God. first wives club. Oh, the first wives club. Yes, thank you. I completely blanked out on the title. The first wives club. It's based on an Olivia Goldsmith novel, and it's really amusing. And uh, Goldie Hawn plays the aging actress, and she is the one who says, "Ingenue, district attorney, grandma," and she is not going to be a grandma 
as for she is not going to play the grandma and she is fighting to hang on to those ingenue roles because of course once you get past the age of let's face it 25 in hollywood you're a disgusting old crone who will never have sex again and no man could possibly look at you which is why you get 65 year old men as the lead and 20 year old women as their hottie and you're still thinking about uh, uh, Sabrina, I think it was, wasn't that? With uh, Oh my Ford? God, it was one after the other. They do it all the time. They do it all the time. And, and I, I, that was I've, the one that really, even even people who, who don't normally follow this sort of uh, process go, really? This is, you know, he was long in the tooth back then and just, you know, even more now. So, But anyway... <laughs> But anyway, yes. So there's Flossie Monroe, and because she is in the the actress herself is in her forties, so yes, she is of course playing the nurse because she is of course an old crone, a hag at forty five. What else could she possibly do? She couldn't possibly be fresh and juicy and hot, which is in a way why it was really nice to see that somebody did think she was young and fresh and hot and still panted right. after she her. She was getting notes from her an admirer signed four kisses. Yes a mysterious admirer and she has fallen down the food chain in terms of repertory theater you know she never made it out of the big she never made it into the big leagues because if she had made it into the big leagues she would still be playing Juliet but she was <laughs> with a lot of makeup but she she didn't she she was never um, top tier. And in fact, uh, she is actually doing better than she did in the novel. In the novel, she was grateful for Poirot to provide lunch because she would go hungry some days. And um, But she's getting these mysterious admirers, you know, the flowers, champagne, beautiful Valentine, even though it was in April. And um, uh, the, the actress playing Juliet is looking at this and you can see that hint of envy of why are you, you old bag, getting a valentine and flowers when I, the young hot ingenue playing Juliet, am not. So we have that subplot going on as well, and we go on to the next murder at the Painter household. Yes, and this is Stephen Painter, and he is a uh, the like the third part of the triumvirate. Uh, say the third of the gang of four of of Abe Ryland and Madame Olivier and uh, whoever the destroyer is or uh, Lee Chen Yang and he looks like he's number four and he is feeling reluctant and we have seen already that he is closer to Madame Olivier than he should be certainly his wife thinks so Uh, he has a near-do-well nephew uh, shadowing a, another near-do-well nephew. He has a near-do-well nephew, and then Stephen Painter dies horribly, really nastily, very nasty. Uh, he has a heart condition. He has a heart condition, and even if you have a heart condition, you're probably not going to fall over onto an electric grate and basically have your face burned off. It's really, you know, be cooked to death. It's really gross. Um, and then the autopsy reveals that he had been drugged. With a paralyzing and, drug that, that doesn't kill him but leaves him conscious. Yes, and this is the same paralyzing drug that Madame Olivier has been working with. 
And of course, remember, he has a physician on staff all the time. And you have to wonder, why, where was this physician? Dr. Quentin. Dr. Quentin. Where was Dr. Quentin? And uh, Dr. Quentin wasn't doing a very good job with his patient. Well, he couldn't. He couldn't he's not sleeping with the guy. <laughs> One would hope not. <laughs> you know, because they questioned him about it. He said, well, I talked to him and he was excitable and he couldn't sleep. And I suggested a tonic. And he said, no, no, I'm fine. I'm just going to go to bed. And then, well, Dr. Quentin went to bed, too, because... Doctors have to sleep too. Doctors sleep too, and the and and I did think that that was um, that was kind of strange because you're watching doc you're watching this very rich man Stephen Painter rich well connected man important man in the peace party, and he's also obviously a hypochondriac because he's so worried about his health that he has to have essentially a live in doctor. And I'm thinking, wow, it must be really nice to be able to be a rich hypochondriac that you can afford a live in doctor, just like a live in valet or a live in butler, and no, not just not just a servant, a doctor. So that if you're feeling, oh, I'm feeling faint, or oh, I my I, I had a palpitation, or oh, I had a muscle cramp in my toe. Oh, doctor, you must look at me right now. Right. So we have all these murders. Uh, the, the the press is ginning up the story even further. Uh, with, you know. Doing exactly what you would expect intrepid reporters to do because, hey, this is what sells newspapers. Reality doesn't really matter too much or the truthfulness as long as you are really selling those newspapers and you're putting out more and more and more. And you are in the newspaper biz. You know how that works. Yeah, but also I can understand his point of view because he's receiving this, uh, Tyso's receiving these missives from supposedly inside the big four. He even encounters his informant in a dark garage shades of watergate and only to find him knifed in the back knifed in the back and you think wow this must be totally real yeah from the from his point of view yeah of course why why wouldn't he think that way why wouldn't he think that way but like you say there's so many elements in here that was really very puzzling including i'm just thinking about now where the murder of stephen painter is intended to point the finger at madame olivier and yet she's supposed to be one of the big four if if the uh, the cards the uh, clue, card clues are any indication, I'm thinking why is that? Well, happening? and there was also the fact that um, whoever murdered Stephen Painter dipped his finger in ink, and then remember, he's a dying man, drugged and face in in an electric heater, and he still manages to dip his finger in the ink and draw a very nice letter G on a piece on the notepad next to his bed. Implicate. Somehow managing to, to somehow do that managing before he got dragged to the uh, heater or after and then went back to the heater and put his face down because that's what you're supposed to do. I guess I'm supposed to be killed. Yeah. And, and yeah, anybody who's watching this, if they're fast enough on the draw, they're going to look at a lot of this and go, this is nonsense. This is nonsense. This doesn't make any sense. Why would somebody do this, particularly the Stephen Painter clue? Because that is so ridiculous. Because when did he find the time? <laughs> <laughs> he's un, he's he's you know a, a, awake he's alive but he's unable to move unable completely paralyzed and yet he's going and being dragged over to have his face shoved into face first into a space heater to be cooked to death and yet he manages on the bedside pad to draw the letter g in ink so he has an ink stained fingertip and you're thinking what but this is one of those ways that they that that uh, uh, Mark Gaddis and Ian Hallard set this up, where they didn't do more. Because remember, you got to play fair. You're supposed to play fair with the reader slash viewer. So they just show this, 
But they don't have Poirot commenting much on this, except to just sort of state this is what's happened. And it's up to the audience to go, wait a minute. <laughs> what the heck? Yeah, because we don't have uh, Hastings either on hand. And in fact, that's something else that happened is that we see Miss Lemon and we we occasionally see Jap. But Hastings and Miss Lemon, basic, they appear at the beginning and they show up at the end, but they're really not in this. Ep- they're really not in the film. Yeah, they, they, they play no role and even Hastings uh, lampshades that because near the end where when, when Poirot is dead and he's raging at the Jap saying, we got to carry on. We got to find out what to do here. I'm going to I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And he walks outside the door and he looks at kind of looks off screen uh, off the camera and say, what do I do next? And then we don't see Hastings again <laughs> until the very end. Until the very end. Uh, <laughs> but there is the clue from uh, the death of the informant. There's a label in the costume label there that Poirot tracks down to a theatrical costumer. And yes. all of a sudden you start getting the glimmers of where the truth lays. Yes, because you also have the hint of there's something here in the theater world with Flossie Monroe, because this is an indication to the audience to that... Um, obviously there's something theatrical about this because why else would you occasionally be seeing Flossie Monroe if the story doesn't tie up into, uh, and, and this is why it has nothing to do with real life, but why would Flossie Monroe be involved in this storyline somehow unless she does figure in this storyline? And so this is when, by this time, Poirot, there's been three murders that seem to be, no, maybe even four, four murders that are completely unrelated, and that is um, the chess master, the um, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Wally, Wally the Painter, uh, Stephen Painter, and, and, the and then the informant. So four murders, and he's trying to figure this out, and theatrical, and then he goes back to... Um, Wally, he goes back to Jonathan Wally's house because he's already interviewed Mrs. Painter and uh, and Gerald Painter, the near-do-well nephew, and neither of them have any idea what's going on. But he doesn't get a sense of there's more information to be discovered. So he goes back to Wally where the house has not been touched. And then he discovers that the near-do-well nephew has never come back, despite the fact that this is an estate to inherit. Right. Yes, the near-do-well nephew has not reappeared, despite the fact that he's the only possible heir to what looks like a lot of valuable artifacts that can be sold for a good price down at the auctions. And Poirot starts going through things, and then he finds the connection to the... um, the, 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 the theatrical world. The theatrical world, another connection, because remember, the informant was wearing a theatrical costume. The informant who was knifed, he was wearing a gentleman's evening dress, 30 years out of date, very well made. And, <clears throat> but the la- all of all the, the labels were, d- were removed except for a partial of one. Yes, and that one didn't quite get finished cutting out, which of course allows for a nice clue, and it proves that um, uh, the people who are criminals really should do a better job of snipping out the labels. But there you are. We have to have this. So he, he sees another theatrical, con- he sees a theatrical connection, and then he's at Wally's house and discovers that the nephew, who has not reappeared to claim an enormous inheritance, was a major theater buff. He had his own toy stage. He had marionettes. He had, because uh, that was the Japanese emperor oh. uh, a puppet in the corner, Japanese emperor or Chinese emperor. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was, I was a big marionette in the corner. 
Uh, there was the paper stage where you could move the, the, the people back and forth. There were plays. There were uh, scrapbooks. Scrapbooks. Scrapbooks full of stuff. But it was all surrounding the Methuselah players. Uh, it wasn't company. at first, but you saw more and more and more of the Methuselah players. And so then Poirot starts interviewing and we see little snippets, sometimes just for a few seconds, of him talking to somebody. And eventually he ends up talking with Flossie Monroe. And she has no idea who he's talking about because, of course, the near-do-well nephew, um, he doesn't have the same last name. And, and it turns out later on that he changed his name completely, first name and last name. And in that day and age, if you change your name, you just changed your name and nobody knew any different. Yeah, I believe it was by deed poll. You just file it and and it's it's legally changed and that's it there's no big deal about it and of course you don't have much in the way of IDs back then too you don't have photo IDs back in 1936 i don't know if you even had driver's licenses i guess you did but they wouldn't have had a picture right so, so and and they, most people stayed in their community and they didn't travel extensively and uh, when you did travel you took letters of uh, recommend, letters of reference with you from other people who had been there uh, Miss Marple talks about this at, in the novels after the war, where um, there was so much up upheaval that you would have somebody new move into the village, and they told you who they were, and you had to take their word for it because you did not actually know. That was in a murder is announced. That's right. That's right. And Poirot would have said the same thing after the war. And you're seeing a little hint of that, where you have somebody traveling around telling you who they are, and you have to accept it because you don't actually know. But Poirot figures it out, he figures out the connection, and with Flossie's help, sets up a trap. Yes. Oh, somewhere along the line, by the way, the um, uh, he, he is finding out the information, and this is when you discover why Poirot apparently was killed at the beginning. And again, this is right out of the novel. Poirot is killed in an explosion. Hastings has to go off and, and try and solve the murder all by himself, and he kind of vanishes. Uh, he flounders around in the novel, but in the film he, van he, he uh, uh, vanishes off screen completely. But Poirot is killed in a bomb blast. He was set up by one of the big four. The destroyer, the fourth, per the fourth person, death personified, the tarot card of death. And um. So you have the funeral, and, and let's uh, face it, this is not really a big surprise. If you see the funeral for Poirot in the beginning, you know he's not going to die, and if you know your Sherlock Holmes, you understand this is what Agatha Christie is playing off of. Yeah, she is playing off of this, and so he supposedly dies in a bomb blast. And you have, and now we're now we're all caught up with the opening scene where everybody is getting the notification of Poirot's funeral. And I do have to say, I would have expected a much larger crowd at the funeral. And also, since this is taking place in the spring in England, I could not understand why it was snowing, but there you are. <laughs> it's either fortuitous or they did it intentionally because you need to have it. They couldn't have pouring down rain outside. I mean, some of these actors, they're, they're pretty old right now. You don't want Hastings to... <laughs> Cold. So, okay, we'll throw some cornstarch at them. Even though it's standard in Hollywood that when you have the funeral scene, it's raining because everybody is crying, even the sky. But you have the funeral for Poirot, and so there's Miss Lemon, and there's uh, George the Valet, and Hastings, and, 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 and Commissioner Jap. And I really expected a much larger mob of, 
of people at the funeral. I really did. They should have filled that that cemetery because Poirot was extremely famous. And this would have been an extremely famous case. And if they were having a private funeral where they did not want to be surrounded by the press, then I think a single line of dialogue would have would have sufficed to say we're having a private funeral. Because he was so vainglorious about his popularity. He would have wanted to go out with a thousand mourners and the entire church filled with floral arrangements to the rafters and so many more floral arrangements out in the graveyard that you're tripping over the damn things. He would have wanted that. They did do a job of hand-waving away all the aspects about the funeral and and the bomb blast because the, the body is never found. That's right. The, and there's and obviously uh, Assistant Commissioner Jap did not know about the whole thing uh, that Poirot was still alive. So they had but they had to get some official confirmation that Poirot is dead. Yeah, because even if you have a pretty big bomb blast, there's usually bits left. You can find they, what bits. What was in the coffin? What was in the coffin? <laughs> <laughs> this elaborate coffin and, you know, this elaborate funeral and they have to convince everybody that Poirot is dead. So at least you had to have some official acknowledgement. You know, you could see that Tyso was involved in in promoting and writing the story about Poirot being dead and all that so they have his cooperation but they have to have police cooperation in this yeah there as was well. there had to have been and some kind of police and secret service cooperation because otherwise who's going to give you the death certificate and what are you burying in the coffin a couple of rocks I mean even if you have a huge bomb blast like that there are things left there are pieces of body left you can find pieces yeah. and who knows what pieces they found. But anyway, so they kind of gloss over that. But again, this is if you are an astute mystery reader, an astute mystery movie watcher, you're watching this and thinking, but, but, but what's in the coffin? Yeah. And then the, uh, and then, um, then we come to Flossie Monroe at this abandoned theater, the Methuselah Theater, and she is going Lured up there, there for an audition. going for an audition, and then she discovers who it is. And this is when we discover that it was all a trap set up by Poirot in order to find who number four is. So there's actually two traps at work here because we have the, the trap by number four to lure Flossie to the theater, and Poirot's trap to find to, to unmask let go there and unmask number four and unmask number four, and <laughs> and then you discover that. Just like the clue that you were given at the very beginning Bulldog when Drummond. when Ingalls tells uh, reporter Tyso that this is Bull Drummond territory, Bulldog Drummond territory, and you should just ignore this because this is just a lot of silliness. He was right. This was all a lot of this was all a lot of falderall, but people want to believe in conspiracies. It was a theater, it was a theatrical setup. So that our, uh, our 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 actor person, who was Jonathan Wally's near to well nephew, not the other near to well nephew that of Gerald Painter's, yeah, uh, not uh, Stephen Painter's. Painter's, not Stephen Painter's near to well nephew. No, this was a different near to well nephew. This was Andrew. <laughs> this was Jonathan Wally's near to well nephew, and he was actually a really talented character actor. He could completely disappear into a role. And so he was making everything happen from the back. He had been planning it for a long time. He had the ability. He had the time. He had the uh, craziness. You wonder how he came up with the money. 
but and but he was also playing on what people wanted to believe and the newspaper man was a prime example the newspaper man ate it up oh my god a worldwide conspiracy with evil chinamen and an evil french scientist and an evil american manufacturer with a shady past oh my god this all has to be real and i'll sell a million papers and Tyso absolutely swallowed it, hook, line, and sinker. And once you get something in the newspapers, even if it's just, its it takes on a life of its own. And you can, you can look at any dramatic thing that is happening in the world, like, oh, massive riots in India or train wrecks, and you can say, it must have been caused by somebody. And you can look around today... <laughs> And you can see people coming up with all kinds of conspiratorial explanations, you know, oh my God, the lizard people did this, or oh my God, the, 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 the aliens have landed and are walking amongst us even as we speak. Now, that, the, the problem, though, is that sometimes it turns out the conspiracy is right. But you really have to be careful about this, about running ahead of what your data actually says well, think of the big martin uh satanic rituals daycare scandals back oh in the God. 80s that was complete and utter i have i can't say the word i want to say but it's <laughs> nonsense complete and utter cod nonsense. swallop it was cod, cod swallop and it unfortunately destroyed several people's lives many you know, they, it destroyed many, many people's, people's lives, lives. And, and 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 we it's almost like human beings are wired to want to believe in a big overarching conspiracy that is running the world and all you have to do is look around and say if there really was a big overarching conspiracy to run the world you know what they do a better job you hope so at least. one would hope they do a better job it's like the the conspiracy about how at one and the same time the federal government is supposed to be this incredible all-powerful all-knowing group of people and at the same time complete doofuses who cannot find their own ass with both hands and, a map. and, and, and i have worked with the federal government i have been in the navy and let me tell you they are not that smart but they're not that dumb either it's really easy to fall in line with conspiracy thinking. And in a way, that's what this whole episode was about. It was how easy it is to believe what you want to believe. Yeah, particularly if it feels, if it falls in with your way of thinking in the first place. If it's something that's the opposite of what you naturally believe, then it becomes more difficult. You start becoming more, oh, let's show, let's see the proof, let's see what's going on here. But if it, if it automatically falls in line with what you already think, you're more inclined to just fall in line with it. Oh, yes. And and that's, as, as uh, our villain tells uh, Tyso at the uh, at the climax, I knew you would believe it. You're a reporter. <laughs> it means by definition you're gullible. <laughs> you want to believe the gruesome, ridiculous, over-the-top theatrical story that will sell newspapers and that suits the way you already think there's some some interesting lines there particularly about actors about you you see david suchet as poirot you know telling uh telling our actor uh you could have been one of the great character actors of our time and and then the you know the character actor says and look at you aren't you just the same with your with your setups and your 
theatrical conclusions and you have to have you have to have everybody's attention. You're no different from me. And Poirot is not really pleased to be told that. <laughs> but the actor isn't wrong. The actor yeah, the actor isn't wrong. And yes, but there are differences. I though that's such a cliche, you know, you know, you and me, we're both the same when you think about it, as the Joker says to the Batman. <laughs> Well, they both kill millions of people. That's true, and the Batman never kills the Joker, so Whereas the Joker if, is allowed to go on and, and continue committing mayhem. You know, horrible, gruesome crimes, because Batman gets dainty when it comes to the Joker. So all of those NPCs are have no value. You know, all of those other people, they're just, they're just there to be, you know, killed. Well, this but, version of the Big Four has value. It's well worth watching. Oh, really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. You can cheerfully skip the skip reading the novel because, <laughs> oh my God, oh my God, it was, the novel was is, is really sad, but it's not sad in the way that her late novels like Postern of Fate or Elephants Can Remember are sad, where you can see that she used to be the best agent and, and an aging brain got to her and she couldn't write the way she used to anymore and the big four doesn't have that excuse <laughs> but then the film that they made of it was really excellent i was very pleased uh it's not in the top 10 but it's so much better than it should have been in every way <laughs> and using the same pieces from the novel i'm, I'm surprised at just how much of it came from the books it's just interpreted in a slightly different fashion a little twist here a little misdirection there and it and it turned out to be excellent oh yes it was excellent and they really used everything they could from the novel and turned it on its head and made it all work so yes you should watch the big four and this concludes another episode of agatha christie she watched next time we're going to be looking at the labors of hercules which i hope won't be a labor to watch but we'll find out folks so this is bill peschel and Teresa. and come out to books 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 in lancaster <laughs> on saturday the, t- the 17th of september 2022 and meet us in person and if you are not if you're hearing this after saturday september 17th 2022 and can't come out to lancaster to meet us in person at books 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 look at our website we do a lot of events and if you're in the central pennsylvania area you'll you can see what we have coming up and you can meet us then and we'll talk agatha christie and next time we'll see you at the movies Agatha Christie, She Watched, is Teresa Peschel and Bill Peschel, produced by Bill Peschel. Theme song, Call to Adventure, by Kevin McLeod. New episodes come out every week wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to anchor.fm backslash mystery and leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on Mystery She Watched, email peschel at peschelpress.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to peschel at peschelpress.com. And thank you for listening.